was like tripping balls on like math knowledge. That that's the foundation on which science itself is built. The language of the universe. Like math, it's broken, and they were like, we will fucking murder you. Hey, we're off the beaten math, where we explore the world of numbers in a unique way. Centered on a different concept each episode, we'll chart the importance in history through the mathematical landscape. Today, we delve into deep debates and riddles surrounding the nature of math itself. I'm Eric, and joining on the journey from out of this world, the almighty Alora. Are you ready to kick some math? Hell yeah, that was a good one. I feel powerful. <laughs> I'm ready! Store it! What's up? Okay, um, we're talking about math, basically, so... And this one, it's a little bit meta. uh, So we got to do the definitions like we like to do. In this case, what is math to find math? Yeah, we're feeling lighthearted this evening. We're not, you know, (laughs) feeling a little bit sentimental. We're just sentimental. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. uh, Yeah, I'll define it like Webster. It's the science of numbers and their operations, their interrelations. So basically the science of numbers. The language of the universe. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, one way uh, you could define it if you wanted to get maybe more to the heart of the discussion is to say something more like that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I that, mean, that rings of like Galileo to me, but that's not even in here. Well, that is kind of we interesting because it's like something you don't really think of necessarily. Like, how do we define this thing? But again, like, isn't mathematics just kind of like a language in itself? So it's like, how would you define English, like the well, language. Well, we do. We do define, like, not just what English is, but what language is. Sure. So, like, yeah. wouldn't that just That's... be defining language as far as math goes? But it's like, I don't know. We'll ask these questions later. Cause that, yeah, that... maybe we'll get more into the depths of it <laughs> when we get yeah, later. But... That falls under one of my <laughs> questions, so... Uh, another thing that's kind of weird when you just look at, like, the definitions is that they def- since math is defined as a science... They define that science as basically starting in the 7th century BC, Hmm. right? Which is kind of weird because you think clearly math has been around, you know, a long time. Like you tell me the Egyptians, ancient Egyptians, like 3000 BC, they didn't have math. Yeah, math is the OG. But like when did they, when was the word mathematics first used? Ah, well that will spoil, that will spoil the answer to the question of, where did this 7th century BC math as a science first start taking place? Where do you think? Mm, I'm going to guess the Babylonians. Ancient Greece. Oh, ancient Greece. That's what I'm saying. So they don't consider all that ancient stuff to be oh. uh, math as a science. So we're talking like 650 BC, something like that. And <laughs> this is the ancient Greek mathema is where the uh, mathematics comes from, that uh, Greek well, just because they weren't using the word mathematics, is that still... For some reason, there's just this idea that it... Like, we talked about these guys like Thales and Pythagoras uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. in the first one, and how they were changing the way that math was looked at. And then that is the first like building blocks of where we get our modern way of looking at it. And we look at them as being naive, but they were actually digging down deep into the math and making it a science, whereas before it yeah. was just... Purely to get the things done to build their pyramids or to get the trading done. Right. It almost feels like the Greeks from like what 
you read or what you're saying is that they almost had more of a respect or appreciation for it, whereas the Babylonians or the more ancient people were just kind of like a means to an end. They're like, we got to do this thing. So what the fuck do we do? Let's count it out. That's the evidence, I guess, is in favor of that. Yeah. But Mm -hmm. I don't know. I feel like maybe they just didn't have monuments to their love of mathematics, but... Yeah, because they still wrote it down. I mean, they were still, who knows? Yeah, they wrote some things down, but like, I don't know. The The other thing, though, it's just that was the start, I guess, with the like Pythagoreans. But it's the molding of what becomes mathematics is still in hundreds of years going by up to like 300 BC. You got Euclid and before that you got Plato and Aristotle. So these mm-hmm. guys are shaping the foundations of what's going to be mathematics like the euclid's elements you know trying to make make it a a strong foundation instead of just like yeah math works whatever right now these guys are worshiping it let's kind of figure out what it is they're not talking about it they're being about it at this point (laughs) i like that but like i was saying it's obvious that they they were doing some sort of math we're just not calling it math as a science like there were there's abacus uh the sumerian abacus there's an aztec abacus both like 2500 BC, there's an Incan nodding system called a kipu from all back then. So, like, they, you know what I mean? They're doing some kind of math. Otherwise, why do they need to keep track of numbers so much? Right. Yeah. But we're it's like, not, doesn't count. <laughs> it's not just involving like architectural calculations. Like, there's clearly some kind of computation going on beyond the physical. There's some theoretical happening there. And that's before even like, Zeno, for example, doing all of that kind of theoretical stuff or just thinking rather than just having mathematics for a specific purpose. That's not like killing but people yeah, he's, or he's in that time in that place also to where he's like, oh, yeah, he counts. Yeah. Uh, Zeno, he counts. But and then uh, he counts. I'm going to jump really far ahead. But before I just want to jump a few hundred years, uh, we're going to go to the third century A.D. Diophantus of alexandria just to mention him because it's gonna come it's gonna come back up yeah and good old alexandria good stuff Mm -hmm. uh his influential books arithmetica is some form of uh number theory integer stuff but is this is just from the beginning he says i have tried beginning from the foundations on which the science is built up Mm -hmm. to set forth to you the nature of power subsisting in numbers but just that first part, the nature so, of power subsisting, okay. that's kind of obvious. But the other part, foundations on which the science is built up, meaning he's saying math. And in this case, even like basic mm-hmm, math, mm-hmm. like integer number theory type stuff. Okay. So he's like tripping balls on like math knowledge. He's loving that math stuff. And yeah, he's like, he's basically, like, oh, I'm going to get you hooked. <laughs> yeah. But also okay. like that, not just that this is going to be a strong foundation that or show you that math is on a strong foundation but also that he believes that that's the foundation on which science itself is built right and at that time that makes mathematics sense. Yeah. was really tied into like philosophy too so it wasn't just like they aren't thinking about it in just a scientific or physical sense like they also think it has like almost like ramanujan in a way but not as intense like there's a spiritual connection to it almost because there's like i want to say there still is a spiritual connection to it with people in their individual ways and how they think and feel about it it's just we you know we have a normal way of thinking about it and separating it and saying Mm -hmm. like oh no it's just like it's pure logic but like there's still 
has to be some kind of feeling that you just don't really address on, on yeah. what does that mean? What does that actually mean? And that's almost like the essence of this episode too, like what we it's were talking about. It's going to definitely be, yeah. Yeah, because people tend to think like, oh, math, oh, you know, math, get out of here. Come <laughs> on, are you kidding me? And it's like so dry. I don't know you. It has no creativity and like all these things that are said right. in popular culture. It's like, no, dude, like from the jump, it was always like almost spiritual or magical. Like it's always been that fucking bitch. From the drop, they're saying like that mathematics is just this hardcore 100% always right. Can't argue with it. Unlike other sciences, they're all froofy doofy and changing all the time. No, math is cold calculation. It's like, no, math is always changing and has all this depth just like everything else, really. So that whole thing they made up about it being like that was just the simple stuff that they have you do, which is kind of what you think math is, like arithmetic. What's math? Mm -hmm. You're like, oh, it's like when you add stuff and multiply stuff. Maybe algebra, that's math. Like, those, that's math. And it's like, that's true, yeah. Those are branches of math. Yeah. But when a lot of those accusations are made, it's sort of just a default of a lack of understanding or lack of education on what other aspects of mathematics there are. We're building this idea that math is this different kind of rigid and not, like you said, not even creative. Right. It's like a stereotype. It's almost like funny or cool in a sense, or at least like when I was a youngster, it was cool to be like, oh, fuck math. You know what I mean? Like, I hate that. <laughs> yeah, it's boring. there's that problem like, too. Yeah. I'm the cool one. I like movies and music. Like, fuck math. You know what it you makes know? me think of is how coding, uh, programming seems to be a similar kind of thing where you could easily be like, oh, I am coding. It's just like, this is the way you code. But yet it's not always depicted like that because it's also not like that. It's creative. We should do an episode on coding. That would be cool. We probably should. So yeah, the Diophantus, he these books had uh, influence and they still do the you know famous. But now I want to just jump to more recent David Hilbert. I think we maybe even briefly mentioned his name, but you know Hilbert. Yeah, yeah. I think we mentioned. Oh, we did the Infinite Hotel. So yeah, yeah, yeah. The um the paradox with like you go in and then there's like one person that orders a room but all the rooms are full but then there's like yeah because this is a way to try and like wrap your head around uh like paradoxes in infinity and they're at this point 1862 german mathematician german i was gonna say isn't he yeah he's german we're only really concerned with like the number theory and the foundation uh of maths like proof theory type stuff Right. Instead of like my lead earth uh Thales uh doing like the the proof we talked about like geometry stuff like circles and stuff with the Thales back yeah, yeah, 20, yeah. 2500 years ago now we're talking in in uh you know like late 1800s we're talking about real proof theory you know Okay what we really want to talk about I guess is Hilbert's problems he has that list of unsolved problems at the time they were all unsolved prob- 23 problems. Yeah. It's a okay. famous famous list because it made a lot of people interested in many of the questions, but mostly like the underlying idea of what he was trying to get across. And then that ended up impacting how math was done and developed at that time. And today we still try and figure out some of those problems and if they're even possible. Mm-hmm. They were released at the turn of the 20th century or the first 10 anyway. All right, let's and- do it. 
the first one we actually already talked about in that same episode, the continuum hypothesis. Do you remember what that was? Mm. It was the sizes of infinity, remember? Oh, yes, like numbers the between possibilities. numbers. Yeah, and it was so we we kind of assume, and it seems to be right, that you have that countable infinite is the lowest set, and then you go to the real numbers is the next set. So there's mm-hmm. the idea is in this hypothesis that there's no size of infinity strictly between there. There's no set between the integers and the real numbers that has a different. Sure. This is just like the first question on the list. And it's still open because even though we added axioms to, uh, we talked about this in, the, in that same episode, I think, the Russell paradox. Mm-hmm. And we just mostly talked about the nun paradox instead as like an analogy. Yeah. So the, the way to get around it was to like just make it so that you can have bigger and bigger infinities. Well, that's like the whole thing to make the axioms, the ZFC thing. Repeat it. The which thing exactly. Repeat the nun thing, though, in case, like, people oh, okay. uh, didn't hear the other episode. Well, yeah, the nun thing was, like, an analogy for how there's a paradox with the set of all sets in set sets containing sets without set, because that just what? sounds like a mouthful. So yeah. instead, we, we talk about if there's... Actually, we did the nun one, so let's do the barber one instead. So okay. if you're a barber in a town that makes the rule that you have to shave everybody who doesn't shave themselves and only people that don't shave themselves, then you have to go around and make sure that everybody is shaven, basically, I guess is the goal in this town. So if you're not shaving yourself, I got you, boy. But then you add that extra tidbit, only the ones that don't shave themselves. Then you ask the question, does the barber shave himself? So he's like, does he have a beard or not? You just can't ever answer that question with those set of rules. And you just do that by following logically, asking the question, and imagining, right. okay, so the barber does shave himself, so he broke that last rule by yeah, saying he doesn't do that. Then it's a paradox because yeah. he can't shave himself because he's somebody that shaves himself, and he can only shave people that don't shave themselves. Frankly, it doesn't sound that much better than the actual tongue t- t- twister that is the brain teaser that's the actual Russell sets paradox and sets about and sets. Sets. Yeah. sets on how does sets. That, so how does that <laughs> paradox uh, transfer to numbers? Uh, the reason why this transfers back into this thing is because it's been proven since then, because this was back in 1900 when they were first, the first time that they were really able to make some headway was to say it's proven to be impossible to prove or disprove. Now that we've made this zermelo Frankel set theory the new theory to fix that Russell paradox thing with the new sizes of infinity. We're like, oh, we fixed it. Now you can refer to yourself infinitely and it, we fixed it. But it's like, no, you still didn't fix it because here's one problem right here that can't be answered. It's actually since been mm-hmm. proven that you can't answer it. It's impossible to prove or disprove with our current yeah. uh, mathematics. Fuck off. Yeah, so... <laughs> Wait, so are you talking about the continuum or the yeah. axiom of, of arithmetic? No, we're, I'm talking about like a, a much higher uh, axiom for set theory, not just oh, okay. uh, for basic arithmetic, but the axioms that they added to handle this Russell paradox to formulate a theory of sets that avoid that. Okay. It's proven that in that system, this continuum hypothesis is unprovable like not unprovable it's impossible to prove and it's impossible to disprove so you can't handle it yeah which is a paradox that's exactly what hilbert wanted to get out basically was to figure that kind of thing out 
but yeah. it's not 100% figured out because we don't know for sure if there is a set in between those two infinities or not. Well, I also feel like it's a good example of how mathematics is creative because if it was sterile and kind of like like what you were saying, if it was set in its ways, there would be no existence of these 23 problems or ways of thinking like this because this is so outside of the box of what conventional mathematics was at the time like these things that he's proposing i don't know if this is exactly what you're trying to say but where mathematics seems to not have much application to the real world when we're getting into exactly this yeah it's okay. not boring it's like it's so out there and creative and People but like you don't know it might apply somehow to some kind of real world stuff that we've never uh, come across or that we haven't thought to apply this in a tricky way. Dude, and that is literally what happens in yeah, so will, many occasions and so happen. many instances with mathematicians throughout history. They'll yeah. look at this thing and people will be like, you're fucking insane. Like, what is wrong with you? This guy's crazy. Like, some of them like, are more insane than others. <laughs> but then later on, like five, yeah. 10 years after they're already dead, they find their books and they're like, Oh shit, dude! We can build just some blowing stuff the dust off. Hey, we can use they, time travel. <laughs> exactly, like they can use that those calculations for like some serious shit, like what you were saying when Robin Ramanujan with his his calculation for pi, right? I think Ramanujan might even be able to fit in here somewhere. But yeah, uh, calculation of pi. Yeah, uh, we brought yeah. that up last episode. So it's just like it's crazy, and they're still using that today for like algorithms for calculating pi so yeah there's the Hilbert's eighth problem is the Riemann hypothesis surely you've heard of this Riemann sums uh Riemann that's the guy but no um this is like a famous unsolved problem about the zeros in the Riemann zeta function which is oh has to do okay with number okay theory. yeah it's we're not going to get into that too much because it's definitely really complicated it's not just the Riemann hypothesis the eighth problem it's also a couple other problems in uh, about prime numbers, but this one implies Zeros only at the negative. Yes, about the uh, and one half and all that. The Riemann zeta yeah. function, though, has to do with complex numbers, and it implies results about uh, the distribution of prime numbers. So it does have to do with prime numbers, and it's also an interesting problem because these are famous unsolved problems. All of them, all the ones mentioned, I think, in the eighth. And okay. also, there's a famous Ramanujan formula that relates back the sum of all the natural numbers. So instead of doing like, you know, one over two, one over three, you just add one plus two plus three plus four plus five forever. And yep. he's like, that's negative one twelfth. And I'm like, hmm. wait, what? <laughs> no, no, no. That's got to be positive infinity. forever. Positive infinity. Like, where's negative one twelfth? Well, like looking at it through a certain lens is what he was really talking about was working these problems and how it relates uh, to things like the Riemann zeta function. Well, that's yeah. the case with a lot of different series too, like seemingly like an infinite series, like a Maclaurin series or something like that. And they end up diverging and equaling like a finite value. Yeah, but not one plus two plus three plus four plus five. Right. But I'm and just saying forever. it's not yeah. unheard of <laughs> for like a series yeah. of like infinite numbers to actually converge to Sure. One value. I mean, we've definitely covered that. Right, which is crazy. Like, it's a weird concept <laughs> yeah. to get your head around when you first Well, yeah, it. you like, you brought what? up Zeno, and that definitely blew Zeno's mind. <laughs> right, exactly, Zeno. And that's perfect. the thing about infinity. At the time, it wasn't uh, comfortable to, like, calculate with infinity, but they always knew the idea of infinity. 
but it just kind of crept its way into math eventually. <laughs> Didn't you just text me the other day about like the question in that podcast I sent you where they did like listener questions and then somebody was like, why did mathematicians invent infinity? Oh my God. Yeah. <laughs> was it infinity? I know it was like, why did they invent something? And I was like, whatever. Hold that thought because that's another one of my questions. Okay. Well, I guess we'll get we'll get to that. But yeah, I guess I should just mention in the eighth problem, there's also other prime number problems that are famous unsolved, like the Goldbach conjecture and the twin Goldbach. prime conjecture. Yeah, you know, okay. you want to mention what one of these are, I guess? Um, What was the, the second prime? one that you said? Twin prime. Twin prime. Um, I'll go with Goldbach, I guess. Okay, yeah, Goldbach. <laughs> I'll take Goldbach for 20 points, please. <laughs> okay, what is the Goldbach conjecture, briefly? It's like regular numbers greater than two equal the sum of two primes. Yep, Something. that's about it. They've got it. It's the even numbers, but you can't do it with two. So we say the even numbers other than zero and two, I guess. Oh, even so natural good. numbers. Okay. Even, yes, even numbers. Yeah. But yes, yeah, yes. that's right. That There must be two primes that I can add together that will equal that number. And we know that for plenty of plenty of numbers, just like the thing with pi. It's like, we're pretty sure we should stop calculating digits of pi. Like, that's not how you solve this problem. You know what I mean? It's, you don't just keep figuring more and more numbers and going, yep, we figured another one. But they do. They pop it into right. a supercomputer and test more uh, bigger and bigger even numbers. Yeah. And yeah and isn't the Goldbach that one that's like when you uh, plot that, like it looks really cool. It's like it looks like almost like a weird like plaid. I mean, I've I've seen the plot and I didn't think it was that cool, but yeah, maybe you're right. I'm I'm assuming you're you're confusing it with something else that looks cooler, like uh, <laughs> that one, uh, the hailstorm, or I don't know what uh, it's more popularly called, the three x plus one problem. I think we mentioned it. Oh, Colats. Oh Colots. yeah, yeah, yeah. Yep, that one cool looks one. cool. Yeah. Or the Koch cool. snowflake thing, like yeah, that's, that's fun. Sweet too, that's, cool <laughs> or our favorite Mandelbrot. I mean, you can't go wrong with a Mandelbrot set. That's some good shit. They have ones on YouTube that literally go on for like 15 hours. Yeah, I know. Because it's, it's like the thing, again, back to the obsessing like digits of pie. It's just a, yeah. a fascination. And like, it's a, just a yeah. fun thing to do. Like, I could set one up, you know? It's just like, why not? When the mushrooms hit. <laughs> <laughs> I have one that I set up myself in a custom space in... Uh, in the Mandelbrot that no one else has made a zoom in. Hell yeah. So we, we've got another Hilbert's problem. The sixth problem is to axiomatize physics. And first, okay. like, what what are axioms, right? It's like a set, like a truth, almost. Yeah, it's like an assertion that we accept to be true in math. Yes. Yeah, so we just, like, we say something that we all kind of, like, that, like, seems true, and then we go, well, let's just say that that is true. So, yeah, they're the rules that we use, and, yeah, so they mm -hmm. are truths, I guess you can say. Like, so it must this, be, like, attached to a proof almost, I guess. It Not at first, because it's impossible to make proofs without the axioms themselves, right? Yeah, like, it's attached to a proof. It has to have some kind of, like well-known understanding yeah but you see what i'm saying you can't possibly prove every axiom with axioms because you would have started with nothing except oh, for like i think i think therefore i am it's like your only axiom and then how do i do math with that i don't know 
It's like a mathematical inception. Yeah, I guess we'll probably circle back on that. But either way, it says axiomatized physics, though. He's saying, I want to build up all the various branches of physics on top of this solid foundation rock that is mathematics. Okay. So I want to do the same kind of mathematic axiomizing, but I want to do it to explain all of physics. And this is 1900 when we're talking about this, right? So this is an obviously unanswered question. I don't know, I didn't mention anything about uh, Hilbert besides that he did math, but he did other stuff, like he did physics, and he worked with Einstein on the formulation of the general relativity. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so that is one of the reasons why we don't, we haven't answered Hilbert's sixth problem yet, because like we have a gap between general relativity and quantum theory. Yes, you can't, a very you, big don't, Yeah, so problem. if you don't have that, then clearly Hilbert's sixth problem to axiomatize all of physics, clearly we, we, we can't do that. No, because all of the rules don't line up. Yeah, but maybe we can someday, right? So it's not, it's still open, if that's even possible. It's definitely not done yet, so we don't know. Yeah, the uniformity is not understood, like how they can be connected or understood in the same context. Well, it's like I was saying about some of the other things, like you start getting to a point where you're like, this is enough, I think I know the answer. Like, especially when I've seen some things are unprovable or proven to be unprovable and all this stuff, it's like... This is a thing that it feels, as we progress uh, our understanding of physics and science, it seems more and more like we won't be able to perfectly axiomatize all of physics. I mean, it's definitely open. It's not a for sure no, but it seems like uh, something you might have thought 100 years ago, but today right. we'd be like, no. It's one of those things where like people always say that are further along in mathematics or science, like the more you know, the less you The more you the know, the more you, you, know. you the, mo- the more you know you don't know. I don't know. Exactly. Like the more yeah. you know, the less you know. Because it's like the more you understand, like say in astronomy or astrophysics, the more you understand the universe, the more you're like, oh shit, there's a lot of stuff out there. We have no fucking idea. Yeah. And also with the evolution of like technology and things like that, obviously, like that yeah. helps us to become more humble, especially in mathematics or science. Like, Well, it obviously changes how the science develops a lot, technology. But it's also mm-hmm. strange how, or it's interesting how much it has been developing mathematics in the past hundred years. So yeah. technology has really changed how mathematics has developed. Supercomputers. And it will continue to, like if uh, AI and, and all that stuff can can continue to make mathematical breakthroughs and stuff. So, yeah, man. We got yeah, AI coming through. Once again, he asked another great question that we still cannot answer, but it's like a raises good questions. Okay. And then uh, we move on to 10th. The 10th problem is find an algorithm to determine whether a given polynomial Diophantine equation with integer coefficients has a solution or not. Now, we're obviously going to have to break that down a little, right? Uh, Yes. <laughs> a Diophantine. Yes, let's jump to that part. Yeah, that's what the thing we were talking about in the beginning where I was saying it's it's like you do a normal equation like we only would do in algebra, yeah, okay. only we want whole numbers in, or only uh, natural numbers as our x values. So our answers can't come out as like one half. It's got to be only one integers. or two. Yeah. So okay. this is like when we did the Pythagorean triples, remember? That's a not... real fucking fancy way of saying integers. Well, it's a nod to uh, Diophantus of Alexandria, though. Okay. That's why we do that. 
because he was breaking down like a methodical way to try and do that. And this right. is much, much later where in 1900, where you've got him, was that like 1500 years later? He's saying, can we make an algorithm? Is it possible that would just solve all of these hypothetical Diophantine equations if they were polynomial, which we talked about that before. That just means the variables that we're talking about in the function, they have uh, positive integer exponents. So to keep it, you know, in a simple some variable squared plus some variable cubed plus some variable and then mm-hmm. all integers and integer inputs and integer coefficients, integer powers, everything integer. And now these equations, all of them, can there be some algorithmic way to solve all of them? Not solve them, but see if there is a solution, which basically means to solve them. Right. Or not solve them and find that there is not a solution. Yeah, but not uh, in between. That's unacceptable, basically. And that question... Unacceptable! Unacceptable! (laughs) So yeah, there's a lot of like different feelings about this thing based on their sort of uh, religious uh, belief in mathematics and in integer equations. And and what do you guys think about this? And and people are trying to use the axioms of math to actually prove one way or the other if there is such a possibility to make an algorithm, not to actually make the algorithm, because that might be too hard without the supercomputers. This is before that. Mm -hmm. And then still it's not answered in 1970. It's finally answered. And so Damn. he gets he gets it named after him, Yuri Mutaisvek. I guess it's too much to get into exactly, but it just shows that it is impossible. What's impossible? It is impossible to have this algorithm if it's a finite algorithm mm, that okay. will solve any uh, equation, pretty much just like because of levels of infinity and that that uh, integer combination of integers is a countable infinity thing. Are and they whatever. still working on that now? Like, or did I they put that to bed? I was saying it took like, seventy. Not? It took seventy years, so he gets his name on it for being the last guy to do it. But no, okay, that so is they're like, they're finally like, no, that's done. Put to bed. Yes, it's okay. widely accepted that that was good. Yeah, whatever that crazy shit was with Yuri, that, that's solid. So we're just gonna say that one's gone. But the reason why is it'll come back. And okay. now we got the Hilbert second and. This one we're going to get into a lot more because this is like really what he was trying to get at was his main point with these questions Mm -hmm. is prove that the axioms of arithmetic are consistent. And we shouldn't have to break that one down too much because we've already said what like axioms are and what arithmetic is just basic math. And so the rules of math that allow us to do basic math, like adding and multiplying and dividing, they're consistent. And that just means that you can't have something proven true and proven not true because then that would be inconsistent, hmm. right? So if you have a coherent statement, in ma- a mathematical statement, it can either be uh, unprovable, which is possible. We've already seen that. Yep. Or it could have some truth value, meaning that you can prove true or false, but not both. So Right. Basic logic. Okay. Yeah. But yeah, I just wanted to make sure it was really clear what that means. Is yeah. math consistent? Is is that a thing? Because if you can do that, that's very bad. That's very scary. So much for the hard foundation. If anything, he didn't think that at all, Hilbert. Yeah. Because he did. There's... He was saying, "Can you prove it?" He's like, "I know it's consistent." That's how, that's why that's, we. And that's actually a good point, though, because it's like 
when people think of mathematical proofs that aren't mathematicians or who have done proofs, sometimes they think, and we've actually talked about this when you were helping me with some of my calculus proofs. It's like, I feel like people think of, oh yeah, you're going to do proof. You have to prove this because it's in the name, like prove that it's Hmm. true. But oftentimes in proofs, sometimes it's easier to go the route of proving that it isn't true first. Yeah. So it's like when doing a proof or proving something in a mathematical sense, you got two fucking lanes. There's no yeah. middle lane or else you're on the media and you're fucked. Like you're yeah, either like you can true prove something or, it's or not fucking true. Well, you can prove something or disprove the opposite. And exactly. if something's true, then a statement that's kind of just like it with the negation in there is the same thing but false. So Mm-hmm. But yeah, like in a way we're going to get to how or we already have that there's more than two lanes because there's like that thing earlier where they showed they made a proof that it's impossible that you can't decide it based on these uh, certain axioms that we're using here. So mm-hmm. there are other avenues where you don't just prove something or not prove something. You can actually prove something unprovable. What? As weird as that sounds. Prove something that's unprovable. No, prove that it is unprovable within the system that you're using. So you prove Uh, that specific problem cannot be proven. It is because some problems have been. Yeah, how? What you're saying is that why you need a supercomputer? Because a supercomputer can find every possible solution like millions of times over. And then that essentially proves that it's unprovable because it doesn't find anything. You tell the supercomputer a certain way to kind of hunt for the uh, correct answer that you're looking for, which might be a specifically incorrect answer, like the Diophantine equation. We just want to find one solution. Or it could be the opposite where, like the Colatz one, we're saying... The 3n plus 1 problem, we're saying every single number or the one with every even number has two primes. We're saying every single one of them. So one way to prove it false would be to have the supercomputer look at certain even numbers that you think are more likely to be the weak link. And all you have to do is find that one weak link. So again, that's like a a fourth way to try and prove something is by disproving it by finding that one weak link. And yeah, without right. even being too mathematical about it, but you'll see uh, if you look through the papers or if they write a book about it, when they write a program to solve something, it ends up being like a very convoluted process and lots of mathematics. As yeah, well they as put in the algorithm in the program and printed it out, and it was just a middle finger. They were like, <laughs> sick. It was like, got it. What is this? Phallus. No, like they, I was saying there's a lot of math is my point. They're not like telling the supercomputer to do all the work and like just systematically check every possible thing. There's like a lot of math goes into it too. Okay. So they have to like kind of give it a little nudge in certain directions. For sure. Yeah. Just like the thing with the pi calculating pi. If you give it a much better equation uh, for estimating the digits, then you're going to find way more digits. Yeah, the computer's like, try again, wise guy. I'm not doing this shit for you. But the idea is if you can program the uh, AI properly, then it can find more efficient and elegant ways to minimize process time and do that on its own without you even really understanding it. But yeah, that's a little bit off the beaten math here. We're we're talking about <laughs> we're talking about Hilbert's main point, trying to say, can we at least use our way of proving things that makes us comfortable about the math that we're using and talking about and building on top of? Can we prove the consistency of the system itself? They were like, yeah, let's get on that, and it didn't take long. Kurt Gödel, you know this guy, Kurt Friedrich Gödel, and he is 1906. 
So he's not even born when the first uh, questions are dropped, when they when he makes this thing a big deal. Incompleteness. Before that, I just want to mention him a little bit because we're going to talk about that for a long time. So when he was 18, he was already mastering math and went on to university to study theoretical physics instead. What like what time period was Cordell? 1906. That's when he's oh, born. Oh, shit. Okay. Plus, plus 18. And now he's going to Vienna and he wants okay. to study theoretical physics even though he's uh, mastered high-level math. He wants to do Shit, physics, damn. even though he's clearly a gifted in math. He's interested in theoretical physics, but then he moves into number theory and philosophy. Then as finally, yeah, as you do when you realize uh, theoretical physics isn't froofy doofy enough, then you start getting into number <laughs> theory and philosophy, and then we get finally into the formal logic of math and the set theory and the proof theory and all this uh, stuff. Damn. It's also a good background, though, like for him to be able to do what he does in this uh, incompleteness theorem. Yeah, that's a pretty interesting journey there. Yes, definitely. That's why I wanted to do that before the theorem. Yeah, I can really. I'm seeing yes. like Jesus sandals, like crazy <laughs> hair. Like I'm seeing a cool dude for sure. He's a cool fucking dude. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, I don't know about the long hair. I'm pretty sure no. <laughs> yeah, but enough. yeah, so. According to Gödel, mathematical logic was a science prior to all others, which contains the ideas and principles underlying all sciences. Sounds a little bit familiar, right? Hmm. Sounds like a cult. <laughs> well, he's in the Diophantus cult, I guess. Ah, okay, okay. This fucking Diophantus over here needs his five seconds of fame. Jesus. Well, in between these two, uh, Galileo, I forget exactly. I mean, I remember something about the na nature's written in mathematics and circles and triangles. And without it, we'd be lost in the dark. Something like that. Which obviously like it's one of those effects of like obviously these guys read works that are based off of yeah. those other dudes that said that. So it's not like too far off in the realm of like. You're right. Same thinking, but yes. So people like are all reading this same stuff. All these people that are talking about this stuff, you know, Russell and Girdle, and they're all reading the same material, I feel like. That's what I'm saying, especially like the further back in time you go, like the fucking mathematics groupies get smaller and smaller. <laughs> yeah, I guess so. <laughs> I mean, we got a shit ton of them now, so we're Well, good. we need more and more as time goes on. That's why we're doing this shit. Yeah, <laughs> we're trying to save the world. Let's get hyped. <laughs> okay, so now I want to talk about the incompleteness theorem. And okay. essentially, there's two parts to it, but it's called the incompleteness theorem. And the first part is that any consistent system that we can do basic math in, that we can do arithmetic, that system is going to be incomplete. That mm. means that we have those statements that can neither be proved nor disproved within the system now we feel like these these questions can be asked like the diophan like the colats or something like that you know we should be able yeah. to ask that fermat's last theorem question which looks like the pythagorean triples but it took forever to prove that there is no answer but we we wanted to say there should be a way to prove or disprove it and it turns out there was yes so the incompleteness proves that hilbert's problem does not have an answer right it's it's kind of not yet the whole thing does uh address it more but the first part doesn't completely do it but it shows like that he's getting 
he's he's somehow he's etching into it. But then the se- uh, the second one goes a little bit further to say that same kind of thing that uh, this type of system, this axiomatic system that can do arithmetic, that's the same kind of requirements. That system mm-hmm. cannot demonstrate its own consistency. So mm-hmm. that is to say that I can't use the rules of themselves to show that it will never cause that contradiction, which, which is what we were really worried about. The consistency. That's what Hilbert and everybody, they really just wanted to be consistent. Uh-huh. It's okay yeah. if we can never answer that one or many, many Diophantine type equation. That's okay if we can never answer the Colots. As long as we know the ones that we do answer are true. Or as long as we know that the ones that we can't answer, they cannot be answered. Well, that's an extra ask. So just to, I guess, go back to the first one, we're saying that... uh a system is incapable of being complete, but it's also saying uh, a little bit more than that, that it's either one or the other. You're either inconsistent or you're incomplete. You know what I mean? You can't be both consistent and complete. It's impossible. And that's kind of what the first one is is saying. So you're either a, a finite thing that's consistent or you're some other thing that seems complete, but it, then it sucks because then it's not okay. consistent. And that's that's a deal breaker. If things can be tr- proven true and false, then your thing is is no longer a solid foundation. So mm-hmm. that's kind of just the first one. And then the second one, when we're saying that a thing can't prove its own consistency, and that is is different, and it almost seems like duh, like how can you prove something is true? For like, how can I prove I'm within the matrix from within the matrix? But maybe right. someday we can. But no, this is a solid proof. I mean, I don't know if you want to get into how he proves this, but. Well, I think I already know, and it's something about, like, the main thing about formal deductions or something. I don't remember. What we want to do is we want to ask a self-referential question within the system. And so what he does is he creates a system of numbering where we take all the symbols and letters and numbers and we give them an individual integer. So you know, like X or Sigma, you know what I mean? Plus, times, Mm -hmm. all that stuff. Any symbol you would use to make a mathematical uh, statement, including uh, letters to make words and spaces in in 0, 1 to 9. Okay. You give each of those an individual integer. So they all have a code, you know, 1 to whatever, a million. There's a finite number of symbols that we use, right? Well, aren't they symbols in themselves? Yes, but we're turning the symbols into integers, into counting natural numbers, one, two, three, four, five. So you give me any symbol that you would use to make a mathematical uh, statement like a... A plus B equals C or something. No, that would be something we're going to have to create a code for A plus B equals C. But A, B plus uh, equals and C all have individual integers. See what I'm saying? That's the first part. Okay, so they're assigning like a value to them. Yes, each symbol gets a value. Then as placeholders, each one gets a successive prime number. We exponentiate by each symbol. We multiply all those. And the reason why we do that is we get another giant integer that we can then take the prime factorization of and get Mm. back all our symbols. And there'll be X numbers of symbols with all their, and that's where they go in the, so you get the order and the symbols back from this big integer. So now you have, not only does an integer represent an individual symbol, but a big integer is actually, when you prime factor it, it represents each statement. Does that make any right. sense? 
Well, yeah, it sounds it does, really it weird, but it's it's supposedly sound, and this allows you to create a way of talking about the mathematical language within arithmetic. So he's doing he's talking about it by doing math. And that should be allowed because the system is supposed to be able to do math. So yes. it's kind of like that. And then you just create a, a statement that says this statement cannot be proven. And then using the numbers in the relationship of the girdle numbering, you can make indirect statements uh, about the system like that. I am not provable. And then you can... Okay, this is back to the barber. It's an anagalus again. So it's the same kind of thing, okay, but it's so different. Okay, it's tying back into that. Yes, it feels like that, but and it is, again, tying back into that because this is all birthed almost from that sizes of infinity and sets thing. But it's not exactly the same, but we're saying follow through that logic and you'll have a paradox. I am not provable. Either I prove it true or I prove it not true because we're assuming that this system is uh, complete. So everything can be proven or disproven in the system. So this thing's true or false, I am not provable. And then I can say I prove it true, then that means that I just proved something that was not provable. So right. I, whoops, not true, sorry, sorry, I proved it it's false. It's a paradox. Well, it's a paradox because I said I can only choose those two options, either I prove it true or I prove it false, because that's a necessity of a complete system is I can always answer that. And then say I, it's false, then that also doesn't make sense because it said I couldn't, uh, it's not true, so I am provable. That doesn't make mm. sense. I, I disproved well, so it. So you're then, saying like you can't prove it false because then that's in a sense proving. Yeah. If I prove it false, that's saying that the negation of the statement I'm not provable is true, which means that it is provable. So right. I should have been able to prove it true, which is a contradiction because I just said so I proved it false. It just goes false. around in circles. The fact that it goes around in circles just means from our understanding anyway, that paradox means that the system is not able to answer that question one way or the other. There is no truth value to I am not provable within the system. So that in itself shows that there is no way for the system to prove itself as okay. well. They, it kind yeah. of proves both things and all things about that. That makes sense. Take a step back. Wait, yeah, what? that's meta. That's some meta stuff right there. Meta mathematical proofs. The other thing too, I guess, is it gets another layer of froofy doofy to really prove the second half well, I was going to say, too, that's almost just like diving straight head on into like the very fabric of like arithmetic and like challenging it. You yeah. know, it's like really going in there. It's so basic. It, it has a broad reach, has broad implication because it's the way that it's done. It almost like is like, is that even fair? Well, the funny thing is that like. I bet when people hear this, they're going to be like, oh my God, he's being so mathy. But it's actually like not mathy. It's so like meta. Logic. Actually. Yeah. yeah it's very logic based. It's not like so meta. Oh my yeah. God. But technically the proof of the sec to get to the second half of it to really prove the whole thing and make the big implication that goes mm -hmm. back to the Hilbert, you have to show, a you have to get a little bit more meta. Because once you do that whole weird number thing and then you prove that seemingly pointless statement that references itself about not being provable then you show that that proof can be formalized into this new system yeah so basically there's still no answer to whether or not that proves that the axioms are consistent that hilbert's second question it's not necessarily answered because we, we didn't we said that it's never complete unless you had some kind of possibly infinite number of axioms then maybe it could be complete. 
but then that would imply that it's inconsistent because of the first uh, one. So, you know, you're making good axioms that will match up with the mathematics that we're basically just leaning into. We're saying already does exist and we're discovering it. We're just leaning right into that. Proving that it's true. Yeah, that's just true. So if if there are uh, consistent axioms, then we're doing good and we're picking the right ones. And if we do, somebody goes, oh, I found an inconsistency. Then we go and identify the flaws in our axioms and we should be all right. Right, because the point of the axiom is that it has no flaws. Like, it has to be, like, a pure truth. But that tenth question, remember I was saying that uh, Yuri Mutazfek, mm-hmm. he got the name for the theorem that did solve that tenth one about the algorithms, uh, the Diophantine uh, equations. Can we make an algorithm that'll decide whether these are true or false if there's answers or no answers for all these equations? And he was like, no, you can't make that algorithm. Well, you can make a direct connection with the halting problem. Alan Turing, I think we also briefly mentioned. Turing. Uh, yeah, we mentioned briefly something about his uh, Enigma thing. Yeah. I think, yeah. Wait, we didn't mention that in this episode, though, did we? No, 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 no. In, in some other episode, just very briefly, we brought up Turing. But this he's, uh, in 1936, showed that, that uh, halting problem is not possible for all inputs. You can't you can't create an algorithm that will solve that for any input. He's just a little bit of a link to to connect the tenth problem to the second problem through way of Girdle okay. and Turing. So the idea here is that well, first of all, Turing believed that everything could be represented symbolically, like even mental states and abstract things. Yeah, he was like hardcore math. Yeah, he's like. Everything is numbers. Fuck everyone. You're just a number. I'm yeah, just a that's number. why he was the first advocates of like AI. Because he's like, you are AI. Well, he was like, he's said to be like the first real computer scientist, right? Yeah. Yeah. And like the Turing machine is essentially what a computer is, how a computer exactly. works. Exactly. Yeah. Like, how does this lead back to the incompleteness theorem? Well, the 10th problem in the the algorithm to decide the equation for the solutions, we can kind of stick that back into the incompleteness theorem because we know there are unprovable statements in our consistent uh, system because it's not complete. That's what that means. There are statements that could be true, could be false, but they're unprovable in our consistent system. So that uh, in particular could be a Diophantine equation that we talked about that has no solution. Like we thought maybe like the Fermat's uh, theorem could have been uh, it's impossible to actually show that there's no solution, but eventually we did. and that But that could be one of the things, uh, problems like that, that will never be solvable in any system. And that Turing believed that everything could be represented. Like that means that uh, we would be the same as a as a computer. And then you can connect that back to the fact that you can't make an algorithm to solve those uh, problems. So... Let me see if I can make this make a, a little bit uh, more sense. Well, that definitely supports the fact that we're all living in a simulation, too. That's your opinion, because this is the interpretation, is that there's two ways to look at it. One is the mind works like a Turing machine. That means there's undecidable problems of this type, which is totally seems plausible that there would be unsolvable problems of this type. But that's to say no matter how much we expand our axioms in, in the way of doing that. Like that there's just certain Diophantine equations or 
That's the, that's the simple kind. Obviously, more complicated, there'd be also undecidable problems no matter what we do, which yeah. is possible. That's not the craziest thing. It's unavoidable. Yeah. It's also like somehow unavoidable that like every single episode we seem to talk about being in a simulation somehow. Well, it's... Apparently is unavoidable too. It's not necessarily saying we're in a simulation. He's just saying that our simulation is the same way on a fundamental level that our minds work. Or like you can basically define living and breathing as being in a simulation. Like he sees it as a technical. Just like how there's the AI can be the equivalent to our thinking. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Like he sees natural, the natural world as a series of numbers. Right. Like that, whatever that quote was earlier. And that allows him to make these sort of leaps that uh, you can actually kind of show mathematically do make sense but yeah so that's the first way of thinking about it that we are like a turing machine and that would mean following those like five logical steps if there's no leaps there that there would be these undecidable problems no matter what we do but the other side of the coin is that there may always be a way to prove a given equation has zero solutions but not by a computer right Hmm. But by a person being different than a Turing machine and that this would imply the first one, uh, if if that was true, then that would imply that we maybe can't make sentient AI, right? Mm -hmm. Because if there's a, a way to prove every single possible equation, then that means that the Turing machine can't do it. We already proved that. So the way to do it is somehow by the human mind being grander than that. But computers don't have feelings. That's debatable. Like, if we're going to go with Turing's take on it, there's no reason we can't create a sentient AI that would have feelings. We can make him have feelings. That's what I'm saying, because he sees everything as having a specific set of numbers or some kind of outcome. So if, like, love or hate, he sees it as having some kind of calculation or algorithm so that you can give the sentient being something like that, something similar Something simulated. And actually, there's another, this is maybe a bit more of a leap, but it's definitely brought up sometimes that if we accept that there are these fundamentally undecidable problems of that type or whatever, if we go again to the Turing way of saying the mind does work like a Turing machine and following all these proofs, that means that there are these undecidable problems in math, that mathematics is actually discovery, is the argument, because there's this math that exists somehow that has some truth value that we sense that it must have some, but we know that there's no way to prove some problems. So in a way, it's like there's not just this infinite depth and uh, complexity to mathematics, but there's also this other level of like outside of what's even our conception will only grab. It's like the universe. It's, it's like beyond, beyond the observable universe. We're missing yeah. too many components of the big picture beyond our comprehension to create an understandable picture. Yeah, we have to change the way that we make proofs and axiomatize and understand logic to get around this, though. I just don't know if this is on the same lines, but like one of the things you could say is that because of all this impossibility stuff and this like gap between the things and that the axioms aren't this solid foundation when you really get into the nitty-gritty, that it's just like everything else. It's kind of froofy-doofy when you really zoom in and maybe that's because one of the requirements to prove this stuff is that you have the basic system to do arithmetic so it has to be able to do adding and look at numbers as integers and zero one two three maybe that's the problem 
And that right, and mm-hmm. we we can't conceptualize another way what we call math, a way of analyzing things in that logical analytical way that turns into a different kind of quote unquote number. And maybe in mm-hmm. the better way to represent number, divide zero isn't some kind of uh, conundrum, and we're thinking of it all wrong. And it's just impossible for us to see the way that it works consistently and uh, fully to where it's not constrained to be one or the other because we didn't start with basic arithmetic. There's some other way. And that divide zero makes no sense in alien math. Like who's to say that we're not confusing ourselves and, and deluding ourselves into thinking there truly is no way to ever know everything. Just like the thing I was comparing it to the observable universe. For all we know, yeah. we might find a way like all we got to do is like teleport like I was just saying magically teleport boom now i can see uh further than the observable universe yeah. oh, or shit. some What's kind that? of looking back in time is looking further in the universe as well isn't it yeah and we've talked about this before it's like we have all these concepts like oh it's the ether it's got to be this let's give it a name it's like what are you even talking about first of all you're grouping a whole entire portion, like a large percentage of the universe into one category. You don't even know it's if it's all one thing. You're yeah. assuming that on top of assuming that it's this or that or the other, giving it a name. And it's just so far out of our comprehension of what it could be. It, in air quotes, because it's some, we don't even know, some kind of energy, some kind of matter. It's like, I don't yeah. know. It's We do that so much, not only with the universe, but also with mathematics. Like we're assuming that this principle makes sense. But then, like you said, it's constantly no. evolving. I think like, the evolution the evolution is distinctly different because of this trust and belief or whatever in mathematics. And then in other things, yeah, in some of the physics, they'll be like, oh, yeah, it's, uh, it's all dark matter and dark energy. That fixes it. And it's like, well, if you only know 5%, then maybe your umbrella dark energy, dark matter is not a very good statement. But other things, they're more precise. Yeah, it's like, wait, whoa, 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 back <laughs> Yeah, <it up. laughs> that's like you guys don't know. But other things, they're like more precise. Like you have to get a certain uh, threshold in your measurements before we'll really say exactly that you discovered the Higgs or whatever, you know. But in math, it right, seems like right. you, you really do get challenged. Like I'm sure you can imagine this got challenged when uh, Girdle was like, hey, I'm kind of like answering some of this shit in like math. It's broken. And they were like, we will fucking murder you. <laughs> They're like, whoa, whoa, whoa. Prove that shit or you're dead. Okay, wait. That's yeah, a good yeah. question though. And I just pulled this right out of my ass. If we're just talking about math in general, and what does it mean? Like what is really a good way to prove like a concept, not just by doing a mathematical proof, but I mean like a concept in mathematics. Like say, for instance, when they came up with the concept of zero or something like what is the procedure for like understanding that concept? And especially if it's like a really sort of meta thing, like that's what I was saying. I was getting super meta earlier when I was saying that could be actually one of the fundamental flaws on why it's not as magically solid as we thought is mm-hmm. because we actually uh, sort of build it up from zero, like with the piano arithmetic. It all basically starts with zero, and dude, then what comes after piano. zero is one. Piano, yeah. dude. No, that was the name that I was thinking of because you were talking about them, and I knew uh, there was another guy, and I couldn't think of his name, and that's who I was thinking of. But yeah, um, so what you were saying earlier is basically the answer to that question, which is kind of based off of what they were talking about is like the incompleteness there really isn't a way 
of completely proving that that concept is true. From it's it, you can actually prove that if you're looking at it in that axiomatic way, that it cannot be proven within itself. It can't be done. So actually, in and that's just really cool how. Uh, Girdle did it in a mathematical way, Mm -hmm. but he was really talking about logical tricks. And in order to do that, you actually do have to accept some basic logic, not just the axioms for arithmetic. So, and and essentially it all comes back to where did we uh, evolve the ability to even do this? Yeah. And, and it actually is the idea is that it comes from the logic required to have the complexity of language that we have. Exactly. Or at least that's one of the accepted okay. ideas. Okay, I think that's, that's the key. It just kind of pops out. Because that's totally the key right there, is that there has to be some sort of uh, trust in a basic level of logic or understanding in the construct. Yeah. So like, for instance, like if you said, yeah, okay, two plus two equals four. Like, yes, we know that to be true, but there is a sense of like, understanding and trust of the logic that we know what two is and we know what four is but yeah that is part of it but yeah i was saying just being able to flip that too to say four equals two plus two is Mm -hmm. not uh necessarily uh something that we tie into the meaning of what equals means but Mm -hmm. it's just something that is uh fundamental logically sure there's a level of trust in like you said language for sure and that's part of the some of the question that I'm about to ask is, is that I'm going to get into. But there's also a certain yeah. trust in the fact that we decided what this and this is called. Like, regardless of what yeah. the logic is underneath, we are deciding what to call this and that and define what that variable means or is. Yeah. Or It is a real thing. It's not just words. You know yeah. what I mean? They're not just symbols. There's a meaning behind it. Just like whatever, whenever I say anything, I, I, there's a word that generally means that thing, but then there's also like a real feeling about a real thing. Well, speaking of symbols too, that's an interesting one because like what our podcast was originally based on, constants, like these are even right. more heavily like entwined with human experience and what those people were discovering through numbers in the mathematical landscape, they came up with those constants themselves because they proved this or whatever, and they needed those to prove what they wanted. So it was almost incentive to create, quote unquote, that constant themselves. But we talk about that in a couple of the episodes. Did they create or invent? Like those are odd words to use in the mathematical yeah. realm because... Yeah, it's like somebody was the first to consider the idea of splitting a line up in such a way that you had that golden ratio. Mm -hmm. But then out of that came an actual number. Exactly. So yeah, you were the first one to start thinking about that there was a spot that you could split it that would continue to make the same ratio. But that doesn't actually mean that that number doesn't somehow exist in some sort of platonic sense. Yeah, like, you didn't invent it, bro. Like, calm down. Yeah, because, like, once you do the math, then you see, especially, like, nowadays, when you can break it down, it's just 1 plus the square root of 5 over 2, or the solution to this uh, problem is this other way of looking at it, that we have a more systemized way of, you know, writing the polynomial whose solution is that instead of a bunch of words in a sentence that sounds like something that you kind of made up in your head, 
I don't know. It just seems like in a way, if something is truly made up in my head, then I shouldn't even be able to describe it to you with language and have you imagine and see and understand the same thing that I'm seeing and imagining, even though it's not in the real world. Yeah, I need like a monitor plugged into the back of my head, like the Matrix, and just like show you what I'm thinking because I can't even like articulate it. There's definitely a point to be made, I guess, that some things could be more in our heads and some things could be less in our heads. And I think the general idea is that those countable numbers, like one, two, three, four, are definitely like not just in our head. And then maybe some other things are. But like, how can you say that a circle is just in our head or even a triangle? That's but what you say. It's the same that thing sounds with like weird. pi. That maybe. Maybe that's not too far to say I think pi is just in our head. But the circle itself, the idea of a circle, I'm just like, I don't think so. Well, pi isn't in our head though, because the circle is there. It's indisputable. Yeah. And you can prove by taking this thing that already exists and manipulating it in some sort of way, finding something that's already there. Yeah, but like the the circle's there and we want to know what the number is that represents that ratio of the mm-hmm. circumference to the diameter. And I was yeah. saying earlier that that could be why there is some sort of hole in the bottom of math because there is no way to completely prove all of it and all this stuff. But that's because you started with this idea of what number is and what arithmetic is and what some basic logical uh, truths are that you can use. And maybe that's where you're wrong in that thinking of pi, that ratio being some kind of number and, oh, well, it's not like a ratio. Oh, it's not even a solution to a polynomial of this. And, you know, and that all this way of looking at number is just actually wrong or not, not the best, not wrong. Like it works fine now, but maybe someday we'll see that we could patch up that pothole. Right. And look inside a black hole and do everything we thought we never could, you know. Well, since we're already basically talking about it, I guess I'll just formally ask my question. Yeah. And it's, is mathematics a human construct or was it just discovered from the natural world, the existing natural world? Well, there's definitely a lot of like schools of thought, a lot of a lot of different ways to look at it. One of the ways is to say that it's basically built up from logic, like we said before, but then you can ask about where does logic come from? And is it possible to have these basic mm-hmm. concepts without our experience of the world? And it seems like no. And that is not that doesn't prove anything, but it gives it a little bit of a feeling like that it is in our heads, that it's not all some kind of platonic universe that we tap into. But how do you explain if it's not something that's already pre-existing that we are sort of like little paleontologists is with our little brushes just scraping off little things and go oh oh there's pie let me put it in here you know what i mean like if it wasn't already here that we're now it's our way of perceiving what is hmm. just like the okay. thing about time like oh time has got to be like this and it's got to go forward it's possible that that's not true just like in the the holographic universe or the matrix or whatever, we could just be on a hard drive already stored and saved, having the algorithm already run through what we perceive to be time moving forward. It's all in a huge plot of all the dimensions of all the different points of the different universes all on one hard drive. And then when they Mm -hmm. go and access it, it goes to that point so they can like watch it, but that's us experiencing it. 
thinking that time is going forward and that it can only go forward. Yeah. There's no way to say that that's not just the way we learn to perceive it, just like the way we evolved. We started to think that this is how you this is how you can quantify things. And then we just invented that out of the logic that we needed to get our language to the level that it was uh, required to be social and for us to uh, dominate the globe. Potentially. Well, there's two sides to the coin, obviously. It's like a highly debated topic in Mm -hmm. mathematics. And like what you just said kind of goes along with the second side of the proof, which is like proving that it disproving that math is innate or that it it is a human construct would be that, like you're saying, we're just kind of making it up as we go along to suit our personal gain or our personal purposes. So if humans evolved in a different way, like for the thought experiment where we removed humans and then put some other species back on or humans again that didn't know anything the previous Mm -hmm. species knew, they might have a a different purpose and therefore numbers would be defined in a different way. And there wouldn't be mathematics in the same way that there would be uh, volleyball or fucking chess. Yeah. You know, it would not be the same thing. And therefore, mathematics would be defined. It would in a be, way but I well. think that the argument uh, for somebody that's more on the, on the Platonist side or the discovery side would be that that is just them discovering like a different path that you could make connections to that's actually you know, like tangential to ours. And it'd be like an analogy would be like different base systems, different number systems. We're, we're still talking about the same uh, square root of two or uh, golden ratio, whatever, but yet their numbers will look different, not just different symbols, but actually different number systems still talking about the same number, you know, the same meaning behind the number, but different number systems. So, and the reason you could back this up is by saying not just that mathematics seems to work really well to explain things, but that mathematics itself, because we're just back to trying to prove the system within the own within within itself, it seems to be constrained in a very serious way. You know what I mean? You can't just make up random axioms right. and then throw stuff together. Like it has, it goes down a specific path, and then you'll see like different parts of the world. Even though we're still we're all humans, so it's not fair. It's not completely fair to say that that's enough proof. But independently, we'll come down that same sort of path naturally. It's like that's sort of the only way to go. You can, you know what I mean? You can kind of wander and backtrack and because maybe you made a mis- misstep and you got to backtrack. And But eventually, like it all kind of boils down. There's only mm-hmm. one kind of mm-hmm. way to go. Though, like you said, there's a yeah. lot of creativity. There's still a lot of constraint as well, which is kind of leads to the idea that it's something out there yes. beyond us. But at the end of the day, it doesn't matter. The debate can keep going on and on on about the fundamentals of the nature of the of mathematics but what really matters is that mathematics does produce a result that is true in the context of the human construct that we now understand and we can't deny that back to the whole more concrete stuff with the proofs and and things like that when you talk about Mm -hmm. in a finite nature things can be thoroughly checked out and confident in in the results and all that stuff kind of like we wanted it to be super super rock hard in a sense it can be like with the mathematics that we need to do what we need to do it's all fine but when you really dig deep then it's like oh no it's not perfect enough and the the feeling is it should be it is kind of funny though because people mathematics comes under heavy scrutiny for some reason yeah as far as like the legitimacy of it but it's just kind of funny because it has so much 
legitimacy tied to it and like I said like produces so much like results yes sure under the umbrella of the human construct but results that are able to be proven like pretty easily and substantially with like supercomputers but there's all other like aspects of science that are less or not even science or other concepts in humanity that don't fall under so much scrutiny and try and get checked so much like they do with mathematics even though it can be checked well like the mathematics uh the mathematical certainty required or scrutiny for different uh sciences it varies like vastly like if you're talking about the theoretical physics and like or astrophysics way different numbers or you're talking about like political science you know what i mean Mm -hmm. like we're talking about vastly different like margins of error and and and, because we're always using math that's what I'm we saying. We might want to doubt this math as being so uh, consistent and trustworthy and whatever, but yet it is still the foundation of all these different sciences, and they all have different like thresholds. Yes, I'm like and, like uh, tolerances. What the fuck do we have going on over here with like I don't know, like food science and yeah, for sure yeah, yeah. political science, all this bullshit, like economy, what's the fucking productivity coefficient over there compared to like mathematics and what we have as far as like the consistency and measurement or like the proofs that we have going on and different algorithms that we have produced it's like come on man what's the margin of error there comparatively and they're like on our asses all the time like science is changing so much but yeah i mean there's just a, a natural limitlessness to math just like the natural limitness to number and it's just like duh and you can never fully understand math. You just get used to it. Yeah, like, get over it. Get into it or get the fuck out. <laughs> Goidle away. So, yeah, I feel like you believe that uh, math somehow exists outside the human construct. So, yeah, let's see. Let's see if we defer here or not. I think, I do. I think that math is innate. I think, yes. I have definitely always thought that, but I also never like just buy into one thing. I just look at the different views and just sort of weigh them based on my current amount of reading that I've had on it. So I'm like, yeah, some arguments had some merit. I'm not sold yet. Mm -hmm. But like that one is a little bit less crazy. And then, you know, now like read another one that I thought that I was like, that's probably it. And then I read some more and I'm like, you know, maybe not so much, but still I'm leaning toward this and like, but yeah, it's just like uh, it, there's merit to different viewpoints on what it means. Just like the viewpoint that this is all just a circle jerk. Because like philosophy of mathematics, how meta are you going to get? Yeah, exactly. And you know what? I'm going to take a page from your book and say that I do feel that math is innate, but also under the stipulation that there is some level of trust like you were saying earlier, the trust in the comprehension of that innate ability of mathematics to describe the universe. We do have to trust in our kind of, I don't know, not really advanced. I mean, Jesus, we clearly don't understand everything. So whatever we're like grasping at straws and trying to understand and we comprehend and put into words which we can understand, Mm -hmm. there has to be some level of trust in that. But other beyond that... Well, it we get eight. we get that kind of trust in other things that we that we don't expect to be so magically consistent. We get that trust from viewing it to be consistent enough. Like I was saying, there's a different 
error of uh, margin of error. Like if if somebody commits a, a crime, right, and they've got to be tried, and there's only so much evidence, we know for a fact they did it or somebody else did it. Like a crime was committed. Like did they do it? It's a it's a margin of error. If it's beyond a reasonable shadow a shadow of a reasonable doubt or whatever, then the, if there's a jury to help help us figure that out then that's okay. We're good enough because we know we need a legal system and all this stuff because things in the real world aren't going to be all this uh, 100% consistency. And then even with the laws themselves, right? They're like the axioms. We know that we'd never have a complete set of laws because there will always be some new case where we got to run it up to the Supreme Court or something or make new laws or change old laws. You know what I mean? Yeah. Maybe that's a bad example, but like we assume that we made up all of the mathematical axioms. So like, how could mm-hmm. there be unpredictability kind of thing? You know, it's kind yeah. of like the chaos theory thing. They're like, Wah! like, oh no. What's going on? Yeah, it's like, well, that's what happens when you make a super complicated system that changes itself over time and it is self-referencing. We're doing more self-referential shit. When are you guys yes. going to learn? <laughs> but no, self-referencing exactly. is part of basic logic. Yes, and that's what I'm saying, is that it is innate, but there is some level of self-referencing and some level of trust in that understanding and there is that system of understanding which we created. Like we were saying earlier with scrutiny and how like like mathematics or like you just said, and I just heard like on this, I don't even know what it was. It was some podcast I was listening to about like stupid people for some reason. And there was a guy, he's some sports guy and I, me no no sports, huh? but he's some famous guy and he's a flat earther. And he huh. was just going off on this spiel and he was like, man, to the tune of like, we only know what they tell us, man. Look, there's no way of knowing. And I'm just thinking to myself like, this guy has no idea that we fucking do. And there is some substantial data there. And like we said, there is like mathematics, like there's no fucking around with some kind of calculations that we do have. Like that's some serious shit. And it's been proven to like a pretty fucking small marginal of error there. Like that is how this is happening. There's the you fucking moon right there. That makes me like, think of uh, to try and tie this back to math of uh, when you when you read a problem and instead of like just doing the solution because you're like oh I just want to learn how to solve this problem you try and attack the problem and if it's a sufficiently difficult problem you will come up with likely a unique way of solving that problem because there's just mm-hmm. it's like you were saying earlier it's a creative process of solving it but it's yeah, like that's your if you jam. just if you just looked at what they said like I don't know if this is too mathy but like the basic rules of calculus and you just said, oh, okay, here's the exponent rule. Oh, okay, here's the rule for uh, these trig functions, how to take the derivatives and never understood yeah. why it worked. Then you might think like, that's just what they tell you. And it's like, yeah, because you never actually just did the math on your own. You can just go pen and paper and work out this math like on your own and see like, okay, yeah. And then it'll be different than the way that somebody else might do it. And you'd be like, that kind of exactly. proves that it is true, that this is the way, and it's not just what they were telling me. Not that it proves it, it proves it to yourself. It gives you, like you were saying, that confidence. The confidence, but it also gives you comprehension. Like, yes, I'm not just yes. being told or given a list of, yeah, yeah these, these trig functions that, like, oh, the derivative of this. But then also, like you said, there is, like, some, like, yeah, I was literally given a list of some. Just memorize it, fuck off. Memorize but it. then some of them also are the opposite, where it's, like, 
yeah, this doesn't have a solution. Like this can't be solved. Yeah. And then you don't go and try and solve it. You say, okay. And then when it comes up on the exam, you write not possible. But I guess the point of what you're saying or that I'm taking from what you're saying is that doing that is all fine, but it's creating this atmosphere of, okay, well, it's this. So just trust that it's this. Memorize this. So then it's creating this kind of like, I guess my main point is what we're, like, why do you think that there seems to be more scrutiny under mathematics in a sense that like, we don't trust that this is real or this needs more proof. I honestly don't think that we do that in a unreasonable way. It's because of the uh, like palpability, if that makes any sense. If I have like theoretical physics from somebody who's in the field would be like, yeah, I don't even know like how real electrons are. You know what I mean? Like mm, it's right, kind of right, right. just like the way that we do it. It's, it's basically as much math as it is real physical stuff. And so... So it's almost like... Yeah, go ahead, go ahead. I, I'm saying it's kind of like we are assigning it a sort of uh, realness based on feeling, and you don't necessarily get as much of an emotional feeling thinking about mathematics and numbers and shapes in that sort of magical platonic realm where they might possibly exist, you don't really feel like you're touching that. Whereas the palpability comes from when you literally are experiencing some of this other stuff, which is why mm. like a lot of people mm. will buy into the one, two, three, four, five. Cause they're like, I do actually kind of get a real kind of emotional connection to the idea of five and not just like the picture of five dots on a die, but like, five dice in a five dollar bill and like there's this five family of five like i just got this feeling of five like just like cats exist like five exists right is he dead or alive we don't know if he's dead or alive but we know he exists in that box yeah schrodinger's cat listen i'm doing schrodinger's cat for halloween that is my costume we'll talk about that later but i (laughs) think i think that i actually understand exactly what you're saying and let me just confirm but i think now I'm totally getting that. That actually makes a lot of sense in the sense that mathematics or like hard sciences, whatever that can be interpreted by mathematics, they are kind of missing this more emotional component or like spiritual in a sense, sometimes a little spiritual. Yeah. Depending on like the way you look at it, but it's missing that component. So it's hard to put it into those terms. So it's easily scrutinized because it, yeah, it lies more in the realm of like the physical world and actual application. So it's easier to scrutinize obviously something that has real world application and you can see it in its tangible rather than something that how can you scrutinize something that's so thought based like religion or spirituality? Well, that's kind of the whole point of doing a philosophical discourse is to just question everything. Yeah. But now you're questioning why are we questioning it, I guess? Well, why are we questioning mathematics is, I guess, the question of the day. Yeah, that's the question. Question of the hour. And it all starts with that 1900 mindset that we could actually answer all these questions and Mm -hmm. that these unanswered questions would be answered. And that's like one of the things that we don't necessarily fall into as much nowadays, I think, because of this like girdle and stuff. We're just like, you know what? This could be a one of those things that we'd have to create too uh, too many new axioms for like a kind of thing that our computer wouldn't be able to solve. 
This is only a human solvable thing. Or it could also be one of those things that is completely unsolvable and like way to waste your entire life trying to hunt down this problem. It's mm-hmm. actually impossible. You're just like, I spent my whole life searching for a Yeti. <laughs> Eric. Yeah. Is math even real? I don't know. <laughs> the end. <laughs> I wonder what Allure is going to be putting on the Instagram for this episode. I have no idea. I actually don't know what I'm going to put up, so it's going to be a mystery, and it's going to be exciting, as always. Go check us out. Like our pics. We have some really cool stuff on there, and like ancient Babylonian tablets and all kinds of cool stuff and information that supports the episodes. And please check us out. All right. Well, thank you so much, you guys. Like, this was a great episode. I love how we were like, oh, we're feeling lighthearted. And then we got super intense. But that's okay. You guys love it. If you're listening to this podcast, you love math. And you're into it. So we're not fucking worried about it. Thanks for listening tonight. And this was an episode just on math and what it means. Follow us and subscribe on Apple Podcasts. And I would really like to get us going on Spotify very soon. So hopefully next episode, I'll let you know about that as well. So thanks again for listening. And we'll see you guys next time. We're gonna kick some ass. Ooh, ooh, ooh. <laughs>